So good evening. <clears throat> it's always met with a rapturous response <clears throat> in a silent <laughs> retreat. <laughs> so we always like to congratulate you at this uh, hour <clears throat> since you've been here 24 hours and you're still here. This is a remarkable success. <laughs> As you've seen, <clears throat> it's um, perhaps different than your expectations about what you were planning for your meditation retreat. Maybe not, but maybe for some of you, um, you know, we often book retreats or vacations with <clears throat> a rather rose-tinted view of what's going to happen. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't sign up. Bliss, love, light, all beings everywhere, universal peace, something in that direction. And then we get here and we start falling asleep. <laughs> or we're so restless we can't help but run out the meditation hall. Or we're screaming inside with our skin burning. Often what comes up on the first day is the hindrance of doubt. What am I doing here? <laughs> Why did I sign up for this? This is so hard, I don't think I can do this. My favorite line was uh, one person said, I'd rather be at work. <clears throat> <laughs> at least I get something done. <clears throat> of course, in California, the, the comment is often, I'd rather be at the spa. <laughs> I could be sipping wine in Napa Valley and I'm here with painful knees. What's up with this picture? So as we may have mentioned, um, we often say this practice, especially the mindfulness practice and the meta practice, is simple but not easy. Simple, straightforward, practical. It's not rocket science. Pay attention, be present, follow your breath. But not so easy. Anybody find that it wasn't so easy today to pay, be attention? No. Yeah. The mind wants to be anywhere but here. It's like this six-week-old Labrador puppy that's all excited except about being with the breath. <laughs> There's a meditation magazine I carry around. I don't know why, but I've carried it around for a decade. And the advert on the front says... Um, Ultra meditation is a woman levitating in meditation. And it says, in 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. The push-button meditation five-level ultra system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe. All in 28 minutes. This could be you. Sign up here afterwards. But as you can see, you've had many more than 28 minutes. And you may not be feeling like a Zen monk, whatever a Zen monk feels like. So one of the things that we do on a retreat, and particularly in the beginning, is we're training. We, we meet the part of practice that's a training. It's a discipline. It's a rigor to simply invite the mind, the attention back again and again and again and again to this moment, this breath, this step, this morsel of food, whatever it is that's in front of us. And what happens is we get to see on the first day of retreat, we get to see the habit of our lives, what we've been practicing. Yeah? So mostly what we've been practicing in our lives is thinking. 
planning, fixing, trying to control, trying to avoid unpleasant, move towards the pleasant. But we don't have much choice but to simply be here and, and see those habits. And it's not so easy to look at that, to see what our mind does and where it goes. But it can be very insightful, very informative. And so one of the first insights we have in this practice is how much, we, how much we're lost in thought, how much we're distracted by thought, how little we are in the present moment. This is a great discovery. It might feel depressing at times, but it's a really important discovery to know, oh, I'm not here. I'm not here most of the time. I, I think of myself, if someone says you're, you're a relatively present person, do you, can you concentrate? You probably say, yes, yeah, pretty good, thanks. And then when we look at the fine minutiae of our experience, we see, oh, I really wonder a lot, a lot. I'm lost a lot. I don't even know where I'm lost, but I'm lost. <laughs> so we might think, well, this just happens at IMS. It doesn't happen when I'm home. I'm really focused at home. I'm really you know, on the case. <laughs> but guess what? This happens in your life. What, what happens here is a microcosm of your life. It's not something different. You know, the stimulation is taken away. The distractions are taken away. And that's not so easy. But we're left faced nakedly with ourselves, and we see the deep patterns of mind. And that's why <clears throat> we emphasize so much patience, and forgiveness, and kindness for ourselves, because we didn't sign up for the untrained mind, but that's what we've developed. And that's what we work with. That's the raw material. There's another uh, cartoon. This is a Buddhist cartoon. There's a uh, meditation teacher with his student. The meditation teacher says, I've never met anyone so thoughtless in all of my life. And the student says, thank you, Master. <laughs> Keep up the good work. But as you can see, meditation is not about not thinking. It's about how to come into a skillful relationship with our thinking, how to come into a skillful relationship with anything. And that includes how to work with our thinking mind. We, some research at Stanford said we think about 60 to 90,000 thoughts a day. It's about one a second in our waking hours. So um, you got to see a lot of them today. <laughs> but the good news is, as I said, to, to see the nature of our mind, to see what's happening is, 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 is the beginning. And even though it can be chaotic and distracted and restless and sleepy and doubtful, we get to see with this clarity of awareness, clarity of mindfulness that comes. And the good news is we can transform our mind. We can work with what happens in our experience. The Buddha said, if I didn't think this was possible, if I didn't think liberation was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this practice. So I want to say, so this talk will be focused on um, really where these two practices of mindfulness and metta come together. And I'll, be, and I'll sort of be seeding the, um, the practice of metta tonight in some, some of the things I'll say. So in the bigger picture, Buddhist teachings are about, uh, it's a way of understanding the human experience and how we can move from a more deluded, suffering, painful state of mind and being into 
more skillful, wise, happier, clearer, peaceful states of being, mind and heart. And so the mindfulness practice creates the clarity, creates the wisdom, creates the insight, creates the capacity to know our experience, to develop insight and clarity, and how to be free from the things that bind us. And the meta practice allows a, a, a kind, receptive, warm, embracing, compassionate response to ourselves, our lives, our inner condition, our outer lives. So the metaphor is often given of the uh, wings of a bird, that we need both of these these essential qualities. We need the qualities of clarity, awareness, and wisdom, and we need the qualities of love and compassion and kindness. Maybe you can, you get to see today, when, when we meet our experience without kindness, what's there? It's harder, it's tighter, it's more judgmental, it's more rejecting. So even though we teach these practices as somewhat distinct, they actually embedded within each other and ultimately they come together. So our presence is a, is a kind, uh, receptive, compassionate presence. That what practice is doing is it, it creates the fertile ground. We're, we're like nurturing the soil. We're like farmers cultivating our own, the fields of our own mind and heart. And we're creating the ultimate conditions for us to grow, to flower, to blossom. And we don't grow under conditions of harshness and judgment and rejection and fear. We grow with encouragement, with invitation, with kindness. The Sixth Zen Patriarch has a lovely expression about this. He's one of the um, primary teachers in Chan Buddhism, China. He said, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness and kindness is the expression of awareness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. And you'll get to see that as, as, as these days progress. So I've been writing a lot of poetry of late and I'll be sharing a little um, on this retreat and this, this poem called Not Running From Here is about this fusion of love and awareness. Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the hole of loss burns deep into your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day, strip bare, And it feels like the wind will pierce those places that lay open and exposed. At times in this life, you don't have a choice but to pick up where you left off, to make a cup of tea, to sit quietly in the garden of your creation and take in the day, to turn towards exactly where you are. You could always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own or try avoiding the whole thing. But that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in even more empty. But when you surrender to embrace your loneliness and the starved parts of your being and you touch the void that you've spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, 
the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. That this is the first step that begins this slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper and deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has always been waiting, that is always right here. So we can do this. We can meet ourselves with this kind presence, this accepting attention. And we'll get to learn how to do this and deepen this quality. So I like to reflect on the, the qualities or the characteristics that make up a moment of attention, awareness, mindfulness, and a moment of love, and to see that they share a lot of similar characteristics. So if you think about a moment of, of, of pure attention, what's present in that? There's presence, obviously. There has to be a quality of openness and receptivity, sense of inviting, sense of allowing experience to be, allowing ourselves to be. There's connection, there's contact, there's interest, there's intimacy, there's a knowing, there's a sense of uh, not being so separate from that which we're knowing. These qualities are very present in a moment of love. Intimacy, there's connection, there's interest, there's allowing, there's non-judgment, there's curiosity, there's intimacy, there's non-separation. Very similar in many ways. The poet Mary Oliver puts it like this. She says, there is nothing in this world if I can pay attention to long enough that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is anything, I haven't found it yet. Joanna Macy, a Buddhist teacher and writer, puts it this way. The Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. I know that may not have been your experience today. It's okay. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. You put your attention on it and it reveals itself to you. So this isn't always the case. It's not always the case that we pace place our attention to our back pain, and we find love arising for it. Now, there's often aversion, there's recoiling, there's contraction, there's fear. But in times when the heart is open and we turn our attention to something without those usual conditioned responses, then something very different is possible. I had an example of this today. I'm staying down in a house um, by the Gaston Pond and um, last night when I arrived, there was a really big black ant on the dining table. And I thought, that's interesting. It's the middle of winter. It's like six foot of snow outside. And this black ant is just hovering around, doing his thing. And I was kind of happy to have some company. And, and then a little, little later, I came back from the, from the evening program. There was two ants. And I thought, oh, great. He's got company, <laughs> sharing the house and you know, probably enjoying it while you know, the two-leggeds are out and you know, having fun in the kitchen. 
And then this morning there was three ants. I thought, oh, they're having a party. They must have told their friends. And it was just interesting to watch my response, which was not of aversion or what the ants doing here, are they going to make a mess, or are they going to bring the whole tribe in, but just, it was just a sweetness and a fondness you know, for, for life doing its thing. Sadly, as I was making my cup of tea today, one came out of the kettle, <laughs> and I felt real terrible <laughs> for the little guy. I put him on, I dried him out, and, but I think he'd been pickled and boiled. Sorry to say. So then compassion was the response. Um, anyhow. <laughs> so it reminds me of a story when I used to practice here um, in the 90s um, when IMS was quite, uh, it was a lot different. It was a lot more, uh, felt a lot more rustic. It feels very polished these days, very pucko, as we say in England. And um, uh, so we'd be practicing late at night, as you do sometimes on retreat, and in the kitchen there would be um, a fair few cockroaches coming out of the woodwork. And, um, you know, this is often months into a retreat and seeing these, you know, things that usually caused a lot of, you know, recoiling and fear or aversion or um, just, again, was just a sense of sweetness, like, oh, <laughs> they're all in this together. <laughs> We're all in this. <laughs> And I felt they must be the most loved cockroaches on the planet. Everyone's walking super slowly, so none get tripped on. Everyone's doing meta practice, so they're being given lots of love and kindness. That's not to say that if you have cockroaches, you let them walk all over your bed. You know, there's, there's a place for wise action and how to deal with these things, but the first impulse of the heart can be really a, a pure one and a sweet one, even to cockroaches. So... <clears throat> Dharma teachings invite us to look at the full range of our experience, the full range of what happens to us as a human being. And, and today was a good example of you get to, you get to, you're invited to be present to the whole range of your experience, both the joy, the sorrow, the peace, the difficulty, the struggle, the knee pain, the contentment. And the, the invitation was, was quite simple. Sit, walk, breathe, be present. And then to see what kind of uh, struggle or difficulty or challenge arises in the, in the, in the context of that. Yeah? So you know, we weren't doing a lot today, right? We're just being quiet and sitting and walking. But what did your mind create around what was happening today? It probably wasn't just simple sitting and walking. But why can't I do this? Everyone else seems to be enlightened except me. I'm the only klutz in the place. And, or, you know, why am I still struggling with this sadness that I thought I should have gotten over? Or I'm, you know, you know to see what we do with, our, with a simple experience. We have a simple template here. To see how we get lost in these trains of thought. It's, you know, it'd be okay, it would be more understandable if we had thoughts of being in Hawaii, you know, and lying on a hammock and you know, drinking coconut smoothies. And, but no, we get, we, we get lost in thoughts about, you know, 
with angry, difficult scenarios and what's wrong in our relationship and what happens if I lose my job next month and we get into all these catastrophe scenarios and yeah. Anybody noticing what the, 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 the painful places you got into today? That were just fantasies, mind-created dreams that seem really believable in the moment and yet they cause a lot of suffering. There's that line from Mark Twain that goes something like, the worst things in my life never actually happened. But we spend a lot of time thinking about them and meditating on them. And you know, we'd rather do that than you know, simply be present to walking. It's a very interesting choice we make, if it is indeed a choice. So again, that's why we, the emphasis on on the, the practice and the, the, the quality of, of metta, of kindness, to be with the, with the difficulty of being in a human body, the human condition. And we didn't ask to have this crazy wild mind or this body that's aching and hurting and stiff and aging and all that. But these qualities of mindfulness and, and, and kindness, friendliness, give us some stability, some steadiness to be with these difficult conditions, we, that we can rest in the center, the stillness of awareness and the warm heart, and not be so tossed about by the storms that come by. So I was thinking as I was reflecting on this talk today <clears throat> um, about, you know, this, we get to work with many different people on, as in the teaching role in many different scenarios of how the human condition can unravel and reveal itself. Um, and I was remembering a story of working with a woman in California, um, and it was a... It was a mindfulness retreat, but she was doing a lot of meta practice. And um, she was working with um, some of her abuse history, her sexual abuse history, and uh, that happened when she was quite a young child. And she was working with this layer that, that had gotten added onto that experience of how she blamed herself and felt such a lot of shame and, and how she took responsibility for that abuse, even though it happened at a very young age. And so as we worked with, with that, those layers and then we worked with the, the pain and the suffering and the tenderness and the, the vulnerability underneath that, what shifted was um, her capacity to turn towards the experience. And we'll talk more about this, about how um, both the quality of mindfulness and metta and compassion is a turning towards our experience. And so she was able to hold herself in a way that she hadn't. She was supported by those qualities. And so the layer of shame was able to be seen through the layer of of her taking responsibility. She was able to let go of that and just to feel the rawness and the vulnerability and the pain, the loss, the sadness, the grief, the rage. And she was able to become an ally to that young part of herself that was very, very wounded. And in that becoming an ally allowed a whole softening of the whole trauma. And it was very, very beautiful to see that from starting off of being 
very shut down and very judgmental and blaming towards being incredibly soft and feeling really felt like she was for the first time able to be at home in her own body. So this practice, practice is very simple. It seems very ordinary when we do the move into the practice of metta, where we're saying phrases that express our deepest wish for ourselves. It can seem very, very ordinary, very mundane in some ways. And yet it has a profound uh, capacity to, to transform our hearts. I was teaching last week, I was teaching a um, 10-day training. It's a multi-year training where uh, training mindfulness teachers to integrate mindfulness and, yo- and mindfulness and meditation into the yoga teaching practice. And um, midway through the retreat, we had um, a family day at Spirit Rock also going on at a different part of the campus. And so we had you know, maybe and 50 kids coming through. This is sort of in the middle of a very quiet 10-day retreat. And so you imagine 50, 60 kids, and most of them were under five or six. There was a lot of very young, young ones and um, very delightful and playful and loud and silly and doing all the things that young kids like to do. And um, it was the day that we were also teaching the meta practice, and it seemed very... Uh, interesting timing since the kids were so naturally expressing what we were also trying to, so hard to develop. <laughs> this is natural joy, this natural, warm, loving responsiveness to life. You know. So, and um, it reminded me of this this uh, piece that someone gave me of um, uh, when you know often kids are asked, well, what, what do you think of love? What do you think loving kindness is, or what? And so here's some responses from some four to eight-year-olds. So one child says, Love is when my grandmother got arthritis and she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though his hands have got arthritis too. That's love. Another one commented, When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Oh, beautiful perception. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. <laughs> so this is one from one of the older kids. I'm not rushing into love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough already. <laughs> <laughs> so just keeping it real, you know. So I want to say some... Uh, about the meta quality and practice itself. So um, many of you are familiar with this practice already, but many of you aren't. So I'm going to cover some of that, and we'll be saying a lot more in the days to come, both in the instructions and the evening talk. So meta is a Pali word. Pali is the language that the texts of the, the teachings of the Buddha are written down. Um, is a word that uh, uh, comes from uh, Sanskrit maitri, which is a word for friendliness. Friendliness, kinship with life, connection. So this quality of metta, the heart of metta, is the heart that cherishes and cares for life. It roots for life. It's a loving, responsive, affectionate orientation towards life, towards ourselves, towards each other. There's a uh, 
expression in the Tao Te Ching, kind-hearted as a grandmother, is one way I like to think of metta. It's a way they're able to meet our experience with a warmth, with a kindness, with an acceptance. And the Buddha made a distinction, or we may certainly make a distinction between um, metta and what's commonly known as love or romantic love particularly. So in our culture, the word love has unfortunately been used for many things other than what it really is in its essence. You know, my dry cleaners has on the door, you know, we love our customers, you know. But what happens when they stop, you know, getting their shirts dry cleaned? Do they still love them or is that just, you know? So um, the, quality of, the quality of love that the Buddha is speaking to is a boundless love. It's, it's, a it's an unconditional love that cherishes life, that cares for life without hope for anything in return. So it's a, it's a very generous heart. It's a very generous giving of the heart. So there's an expression I like that, that summarizes it in one way. It says, um, I want everything for you, but I want nothing from you. I want everything for you, but nothing from you. So often our experience of love is tainted by conditions. You know, the love that we've received from loved ones or family or Often there's something wanted in, in return. Yeah. I'll love you if you love me. I'll love you more. I'll stay around if you stay around. You know, all kinds of different conditions. But this quality of matter is, is in its essence, in its, in its potential, is more boundless than that. Not needing anything. So there's a poem by the Sufi poet Hafez, uh, which reminds me of the, the, there's a reference to to metta as being like gentle rain, where it showers everywhere equally, just like this lovely freezing rain we're having, showers the land equally <laughs> with slick black ice <laughs> that you need to be very careful when you walk outside. <laughs> so anyway, the poet Hafez puts it this way, he says, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. It lights up the whole sky. So the, so the sun is a great metaphor for that radiant quality, radiant capacity of the heart. And it's an invitation for us to extend ourselves, extend our love and concern out of the familiar, out of just our, of our loved ones or friends or family. You know, we have a certain circle of love that we extend to, and then there's everybody else <laughs> who are left to fend for themselves. Thank you very much. And so Meta is saying, no, we have a capacity to really feel that boundless quality, that care, that, that unconditioned affection. This is from the poet <clears throat> Naimi Shihab Nai, who puts it beautifully, a poem called Red Brocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's from, and where he's headed. That way he'll have strength enough to answer. Or oh, by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts, here. 
Take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I wasn't busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. That's a beautiful metaphor of how we can be in this world. So the meta is this boundless quality, but it's also very simple. It's very ordinary. It's very accessible. It's something that we all know in our hearts and our experience. The simple attitude of caring, of wishing well, of wanting others to be happy, wanting ourselves to be happy, to be free of pain. It's the simple gesture of holding open the door for somebody or letting somebody in line or letting someone have the last cookie or calling a friend or holding a child who's in distress. There's, there's the hundreds of actions a day we do that are very simple expressions of, of a simple care and respect for ourselves, for each other. There was a sweet story on the last retreat. We offered some, uh, we, we got some scholarship money uh, for students to do this course. And we had two, uh, these two great women from this, from New York who uh, involved in um, uh, taking uh, yoga out to uh, diverse communities. And, uh, and they, they, they connected, I think they work for the same organization. And they both said to each other, well, what happens if only one of us gets the scholarship? And the other, the other one said, well, we'll just share it. You go one time, I'll go the next time, and you go the next time. And just, that was such a sweet example of medicine. Like, no, it's not about just me. It's about how can we, how, we're all in this together. How can we share this? I got an email from a student who put it this way. It was in response to... Um, a friend of hers who, was, who got rushed into hospital with appendicitis. And she was telling me how it went. Anne is feeling way better. She seems so appreciative that I've been here for her. I'm so happy to do it. I love doing stuff like this. It's kind of the most natural thing to me. I love living true responsiveness. Like if there's a car accident, while the sound of the crash is still reverberating, my body is running towards the scene. I can't help it. And I love that feeling, that moment, that response. No thinking, just doing. I feel so at home in that. It's just a lovely, just the, the way the heart, that the op- when the heart's unguarded and not in fear, it moves in that way. It moves to reach out, to connect, to help. It's also a, a quality that deepens a, a sense of connection. We often feel so separate and isolated, even if... We live in a big city. We can feel so caught up in our own selves and self-referencing. And meta helps to soften the boundaries, soften the edges, soften that sense of isolation. And we feel, just like I felt with the ants, there's a sense of connection. It's not just an ant, it's a, it's a living, it's a life form. There was a woman here on retreat um, I must, I must have been teaching here in the summer because a lot of flies. I oh, know it was a spirit rock, and it was. Um, <laughs> I know you have flies here, but it's not in winter so much. I'm seeing so many, um, and, and we had a lot of flies this particular summer. And she's, she, and she talked about how normally she's incredibly paranoid about insects and bugs, and she sprays everything and swats everything. 
but she, on this meta retreat, she felt so open and that bugs were landing on her and ants were crawling on her. And she just, and it was just that sense of like, oh, this is life, life doing its thing. And that impulse to, to swat and to kill, just, it couldn't, it couldn't arise in that space of kindness. This is from Thomas Merton, who spent a lot of his time like you're doing in silence and on retreat. He said, it is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not for what they say. And you may discover this in your time here, that even though we're in silence and in very much in our own solitude, that a deep sense of connection and camaraderie and warmth can start to arise. And often you can feel a deeper sense of connection with people in the depth of silence than you might do if you'd spent the last you know, seven days you know, yakking and finding out what people do and where they're from. There's just something, we touch into something much deeper in the silence. So an important thing I want, ah, I guess that is something falling off the roof. <laughs> if this was California, I think, oh, it's an earthquake. So be careful when you walk outside. <laughs> in fact, I'd recommend you stay inside and <laughs> going over to you know, the annex and uh, be mindful. <laughs> so what was I saying? Something about something. <laughs> may all beings be safe. <laughs> That's the first metaphrase. May all beings be safe. May all be safe and protected. So, um, yeah, one, one point I wanted to emphasize is that um, to also reflect on meta being an attitude of heart, an attitude in that the way that we meet, the way that we orient towards our experience, the way we orient towards ourselves, towards another, towards the world. It's the way that we can incline our mind. The Buddha said, whatever we frequently ponder and incline towards that, the mind becomes. So meta practice it is an inclination towards kindness versus judgment or reactivity or hostility or wherever else we might more habitually go. It's an orientation, inclination towards kindness. And we start with ourselves. Because you know, so often um, the way we are with ourselves, and you'll notice this when you sit, is we'll notice how harsh we can be how judgmental, how cruel sometimes, how much we push and, you know, God, it's five o'clock and I'm not enlightened yet. Like, you know, how many breaths did you follow in that meditation? Three, that's pathetic. And, you know, look at those people, they all look so intelligent and you know, they're all sitting there in Nirvana and I'm just like thinking about work. And you know, so watch the critic, watch the judging mind. I'll probably say more about it later in the retreat because it, seems to be particularly apparent on a meta-retreat because the, the meta-retreat in a way is a direct antidote to the, to the negative self-talk and the trance of unworthiness that we, that we dwell in, can dwell in. Yeah, so the critic comes, thank you very much for your opinion. Goodbye, I'm gonna, may you be happy, may I be safe, may you be free from suffering. I love the 
phrase that Oscar Wilde said, when, uh, which ref- refers to um, this cultivation of uh, self-matter, of loving ourselves. He said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. And we have many, many opportunities to do that, to feel, to sense into our humanness and the struggles that we face in our lives and how essential it is to bring this quality of kindness to it. This is exemplified by by the story I'll read to you. It's called Two More Aisles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket in a shopping cart. As they passed the cookie section, The little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. Of course, the little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and of course, again, the little girl began to shout for candy. When told she couldn't have any candy, she began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and take a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) so the parents in the room will particularly resonate with that one so we do that with ourselves there there thinking thinking there there judging judging there there planning planning there there just 500 more breaths to go there there so we you know hold ourselves, you know, coaxing ourselves, coaching ourselves in a way with that, with that attitude. So you might, you might ask, well, if this is so beautiful, why, why why aren't I dwelling in this? And this is a really good reflection. Why, why do we have to practice this? You know, if, if this loving kindness is really the nature of our own heart, that our heart has innate goodness, why is it that we struggle so much? And each of you will have different responses to that. But one of the, one of the reasons is because to, to dwell in the heart means we have to feel what's in the heart. And so many of us have had, uh, you know, it's hard to get through life without the heart shutting down in response to pain, into difficulty, into struggle, into grief, into loss. And so over time, the heart gets tighter, it gets shrunk, it gets contracted through fear, being overwhelmed, through dealing, not wanting to feel the pain, so what happens is we, is we sort of descend into numbness and frozenness towards ourselves, towards each other. And so I often think of metta as, the, as thawing, just like the, the ice is thawing on the roof. The, we're melting the hardness of the heart. We're melting the, the constrictions, 
the fears, the wounding, and we, we meet that with a tenderness, and it softens, and it opens, and melts. So lastly, I um, just want to speak to um, the potential of metapractice. That, as I mentioned, as, and as we will be doing, the, the practice is just like mindfulness is very simple. And yet there's something very powerful, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, that's powerful about intention. The, the, the phrases that we use are intentional phrases, which have a lot of power in the mind. May I be safe, may I be t- protected, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. I f- it feels to me like we're, we're creating new neural pathways, replacing the self-talk, the judgments, the high standards, the pushing, the driving, with this force of kindness. And the repetition and the intentionality creates a tremendous shift in our being. I started doing this practice when I was 19. I was, uh, I was in London. I, was, I had a white mohawk and I was a young punk rocker. And, um, and it was a pretty angry young man and you know, thought that all the problems were out there and a lot of blame and anger and... Uh, and a lot of high, tight, tightness and hardness in my own heart. And I use that metaphor of melting because when I first started doing meta practice, it felt like there was an iceberg in my heart that was frozen solid. And it took a long time to soften and melt those barriers and constrictions. And, but over time, it, that did happen. It thawed, it melted, it eased. And now there's much more easeful access to kindness, to love, to compassion. And there's many great examples of people who live from this place. Going, all, going back all the way to the Buddha, when the Buddha died, his faithful attendant, Ananda, was found distraught in the forest, crying, and the words that came, what he was speaking was, he who was so kind, he who was so kind, the Buddha that was so kind. All the great qualities that, that he could have mentioned, wise, intelligent, brilliant, enlightened, you know, he who was so kind. Martin Luther King, another beautiful example of someone who's, who, who's taken this quality of love to its depth and capacity, who writes, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns and to the broader concerns of all humanity. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I have decided to stick with love Hate is too great a burden to bear. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to stick with love. Unconditional love will have the final world in reality. And I'm going to close with this poem from Mary Oliver. It's a short poem about her grandmother. And it speaks to how, you know, going back to my earlier point about we, we, on a retreat, we experience the fruit of our actions. We experience the habits of our lives. And if we develop the practice of metta as a, as a deep practice and habit of our lives, it bears tremendous fruit. And um, this poem is sort of an example of, of what happens if, when we sow the seeds of love in our lives. It's called In Praise of Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother 
with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor. So she said the garden ants could crawl underneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for for myself? But being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving. And what shall I wish for for myself? But being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving. So maybe, so may that be what becomes the strongest stream in our lives and our hearts. So what remains as we ripen in our years is that quality, that fabric of love. And that's possible. And we start right here by the way that we are with ourselves, the way that we are with each other. Even though we're practicing in silence and solitude, we can create tremendous field of warmth in our hearts for each other as we practice, as we walk past each other, as we eat together, as we hold doors open. Okay, so let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.